The universe is filled with billions of galaxies, incredible planets, enormous black holes. The universe is also filled with incredible mysteries, which leaves me with a lot of questions. Which leaves us with a lot of questions. And we're here to answer some of them. Welcome to The Astrolic Explains. So welcome to a brand new episode of The Astrolic Explains. Welcome, welcome. I have a lot on my mind today. And wow, this is going to be one of those episodes. Well, I don't know. Um, basically, my question today for you is pulsars. That's not a question. Uh, pulsars? That's better. <laughs> basically, I see the name pulsar written in a lot of articles and in a lot of places when it comes to astronomy. Mm -hmm. And it's only recently occurred to me, I don't really know what pulsars are all about and how exactly they differ from, I don't know, is there such a thing as a regular star? Or well, a common star. Yes, the, like stars uh, spread through what we call the main sequence and that's uh, uh, where most stars are. And then- uh, Would you say in that regard that pulsars are much rarer? They are, uh, but simply because it's one of the way a star can uh, end okay. their life. But I am not an expert on pulsars, but I know somebody who is. Time for another special guest. It's time for another special guest. So, special guest, please introduce yourself. Uh, hi, folks. Uh, my name is Rami. I'm actually all the way in Sydney, Australia. I am a up-and-coming pulsar astronomer. Um, I've been finished, I've just finished my uh, Master of Astrophysics with uh, Swinburne University of Technology. I've done three years of doing that. I'm now currently doing my uh, one-year thesis for my Master of Research part of it. Um, and then the next step will be the PhD. So I'm looking at moving into a PhD, of course, studying my favorite things in the world that we're gonna hear all about today called pulsars. And, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's uh, been a bit of a different journey for me. I, haven't, I didn't come by the usual path of academics. I come by a very different path, but it's been a very good learning curve to get to this point, this point in my life and then apply what I've learned so far in life to the next part of my life as well. That's really cool. Yeah, cool. Actually, can you tell us a little bit about uh, um, the unusual path that you took uh, the, before we get into the science? Yeah, sure. So... I actually um, come from a digital background and a finance background. Um, and in fact, I was a financial planner a former lifetime ago. Um, I worked in, I, when I first left school, I left school and started working in finance. So I worked in finance for 12 years, worked for banks and helped build a bank here in Australia and worked in superannuation, well, what, you, what other people call pensions. Um, and, you know, did different roles there. So financial management, um, FX trading, all the, all the weird stuff that happens in the finance world. Um, around the mid-2000s, I transitioned from finance into digital. I helped build an online digital bank here in Australia. And um, that's when I first got my first flavor of digital, and I loved it. Um, and so I was building uh, digital platforms like newsletters and very early social media stuff back in 2007, 2008-ish. Um, 
where I got into things like, you know, uh, Facebook and obviously Twitter was sort of emerging around then as well. And you know, one of the first iPhones came out, so things started changing rapidly around me. Um, from that, I kind of just kept going in that world and kept building up my digital skills over time. And eventually I actually went, you know what, I can actually make some money out of this. And I started my own, my first company I started, which was actually a social media company um, way back when, in, in the early 2010s. Um, and that just provided social media services to local businesses. So small businesses here who were busy mums and dads who were running cafes and things like that. I just went into their shops and said, look, do you need someone to handle your social media? And they were like, yes, because we have to run our business. We don't have time to do social media. So I was like, perfect, but why don't you pay me to do that for you? And they you know, had a couple of businesses doing that. Um, and then I've been, got into some charity work as well, started my own charity at one point in life, um, an LGBTIQ foundation that helped online bully, counter online bullying, I should say. Um, and then I worked for the government um, for a number of years, again, managing the digital team and building digital platforms for three government agencies. So my background has not been anything to do with science at all, but in the background of my own background, I have been loving and doing as much as I can when it comes to pulsars and science. I've been reading about the stuff since I was 15 years old. I've got the equivalent just by reading textbooks for my whole life of a bachelor's degree um, without giving the certification by the time I step into my master's. Um, and so I had all this knowledge and background. And it's always been a passion of mine. And every job I've had, people said to me, what are you doing here? Go do something in space. You shouldn't be in finance. You should be, you know, you should be, you shouldn't be doing finance. You go I just talk people's ears off about space. And so they were like, just go do it. And eventually I got to the place in my, in my last job in 2018, my government job. And they said to me, we've got a great gig for you. It's an amazing gig. It's a six-figure paying gig and you're going to have it as a director. Do you want it? And I was like, I need to make a choice at this point in my life. Do I want to do this? Because once I take that money, I can never go back. Mm -hmm. So do I want to do this or do I want to follow my passion? And I went, push the money away. And my income went from like this much to zero overnight, which is terrifying. Um, and then I just followed my passion. And that's how I got formalization of actually becoming an astronomer, going for my degree and my master's and getting that all done. But it's definitely not the traditional route. I, my, my, my undergrads in commerce, for example, I don't come up through a science undergrad. Wow. Wonderful. Wow. All right. Okay. Let's get to the matter at hand. We are going to talk about pulsars. And I think Chris has a lot of questions about them. Some, yeah, I have some questions. So let's dive straight in with what causes a pulsar to form? It's a fantastic question because it's actually a, it gives you a bit of a snapshot on the evolution of uh, very massive stars, in particular how they die or transition into the next phase of their life is more as well, I like to say. Um, so there's a couple of different scenarios. So for stars, it's probably as massive our, as our sun. So a general kind of star. What will happen when that sort of heads towards the end of its life? It's going to puff out its outer layers and become a beautiful planetary nebula. But what it leaves behind is a hot cinder core, uh, and that becomes something called a white dwarf. And that's because the sun's not massive enough to form exotic objects like, like pulsars or neutron stars or black holes. But if the mass of the star, the progenitor star, is somewhere around you know, 8 to 25 solar masses, then it's got enough mass and gravity so that when it actually does uh, end its main sequence life, the core collapses inwards. And as that core collapses inwards, it actually crushes things like the protons and electrons together to form neutrons and releases neutrinos in the process. And that forms something called a neutron star. 
Now, a pulsar is a neutron star. There's no difference between them. There are, it's a different variety of a neutron star, but it's actually a neutron star. Now, some neutron stars spin really fast um, due to the collapsing angular momentum. Um, and they also have very strong magnetic fields. Also, once again, due to the collapsing magnetic flux of the actual uh, original star being uh, forced down into the smaller star. And when you have these wonderful uh, conditions occur where you have a neutron star being born, a strong magnetic field being crushed down onto the neutron star and a high rotation, that kind of sets up the right scenario for a pulsar to be born. But all those three things need to happen. So it's gonna be a neutron star, it's gonna be very spinning very fast and it's gonna be highly magnetic. And what that does, it actually causes a pulsar to be born. And the pulsar is essentially a neutron star with beams of radio light coming from its magnetic poles and as they sweep past the earth, much like a lighthouse, you know, a, a beam of light sweep past a ship in the sea, uh, we register a pulse, and that's what we call a pulsar, and that's how pulsars are born. Uh, and just a side note, for stars that are bigger than 25 solar masses, which, you know, they don't actually, when they collapse, they don't form neutron stars, they keep going, they form black holes, and that's, uh, that's a whole other story there. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I want also to add that these neutral stars are tiny. They compress more than the mass of the sun in something that is between 20, 10 and 20 kilometers, like the size, the size of a city. And it's a huge mass, so a huge density. And one of my favorite things about um, neutral stars is that there are mountains on it, but they are, given that the density and the gravity is so high, they're just millimeters tall. And we're trying to understand this variation in the surface because it might indicate something very profound about the properties of what's inside the pulsars. And they, sorry. And they're classed as mountains, are they? A millimeter tall? Yeah, why not? Well, the, so Chris, as uh, there is an issue uh, here, sorry, there is an issue because um, Chris, uh, being Welsh, is very proud of uh, Mount Snowden, the tallest mountain in Wales, which oh, yes. is a thousand seventy-six meters tall, something like that. And <laughs> I do point out that. Uh, Classifying it as mountain is a little bit generous because. But he has no problem in classifying something a millimeter tall on a pulsar. Compared to the size of the pulsar. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. But, but it, it, is a, it is a wonderful um, little factoid to remember that they are such uh, immensely dense objects that, um, you know, a single teaspoon of a pulsar material. If you were able to get a single piece of pulsar material off a pulsar, would weigh as much as all of humanity combined. So if every human that ever was and ever lived and crushed them into a single teaspoon, like a sugar cube, that's the density of a pulsar. And it blows my mind when you think about that. Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. That's I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> what, compressing all of humanity in a single teaspoon. <laughs> uh, so we talked a little bit, I think, about. Pulsar's main characteristics. Mm -hmm. If there's any other really fascinating things about them, what are they? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, there's, there's a different variety of pulsars. So I'm just going to check again that you can hear me okay, because there's some stuff happening about okay. So there's a different variety of pulsars um, that actually exist as well. And you know, one of the species that I study, the subspecies that I study is called a millisecond pulsar. 
And these, these guys are really, really interesting. Like they're actually, um, they've got a beautiful evolution and journey throughout their history and they're very old and they have to be very old because we see them today. And, and they start off as a binary system of stars, like just two regular main sequence stars. One's obviously massive, one may or may not be massive. And when the massive one blows up and forms a pulsar, it's just a regular classical pulsar. So it spins, you know, it tends being the lights out. But eventually pulsars, they lose energy over time because they're radiating, radiating away energy. They're basically losing energy. And so they start slowing down. And remember I said how they need to be spinning very fast to become a pulsar? Well, once they get to a point where they spin slow enough that they just switch off being a pulsar. They're still a neutron star, they're still there. They're just not a pulsar anymore. And that usually happens about 10 to 100 million years after they, they're first born. Now, the, the, the species of pulsar that I study is called a millisecond pulsar because these things are spinning very, very fast and they've got very, very low magnetic fields, which kind of confuses that whole first evolution model I just spoke about. Because how can something be spinning very fast but have a very low magnetic field? And the way that we actually know that what causes these things to exist is because the binary companion eventually undergoes its own evolution and it expands uh, into, a, into a red giant star. And then the, the, the pulse of it's no longer you know, pulsing, it's just a neutron star, starts absorbing and, and, and accreting material from its binary companion, which falls onto its surface, which increases the angular momentum, which spins it up again even faster than before, restarting that pulsar engine, but twice as fast as, you know, many, many times faster than the other one. So it's like a zombie star, it's a double zombie, because it's died once, it's alive again. It's, it's, they're quite amazing, these, these things. And um, one of the fastest spinning objects in the world, sorry, in the universe, actually the fastest spinning object in the universe that we can measure, is a millisecond pulsar. And it's spinning at uh, something like 716 hertz. And that is equivalent to 70,000 kilometers a second, which is roughly about 24% the speed of light. So it's wow. rapidly rotating. And it's, it's amazing, it hasn't thrown itself apart. Wow. And yeah, I'm guessing it's the strong magnetic field that actually keeps it from breaking apart. Yeah, yeah. it's a huge gravity, the huge density. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So neutrons are electrically neutral, uh, as as the Italian uh, uh, who came up with uh, that term said. And uh, so they are not pushing away. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that is uh, uh, like repelling each other. So they are stuck there uh, and the gravity is extremely high. Yeah. Also, another factoid, um, like, the energy that uh, um, comes out is not uh, uh, fusion like in regular stars, but it's just uh, the remnant energy that's uh, from uh, um, the from the um, physical processes uh, that uh, created the neutron uh, star in the first place, and slowly uh, emitting that energy out in. Extremely dramatic ways. Uh, yes. um, no, this third question, I think. Because, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's been answered. Okay. Um, so, using pulsars, how can we use them to detect gravitational waves? This is another wonderful question. I, I could probably like speak volumes and volumes and hours and hours about this. So, I'll try to summarize it. But there's actually a couple of ways that we can do this. And in fact, pulsars were first used not only to discover the, the first evidence, first indirect evidence of gravitational waves, but also 
uh, and it's a 30 year anniversary this year, are uh, the first exoplanets ever to, to, to be found outside our solar system in 1992. But again, that's another story. Um, in terms of how we find gravitational waves, the indirect way that we do it is that when we have a pulsar and another neutron star or a black hole or maybe something like high mass orbiting each other, um, the science of relativity tells, of general relativity tells us that if they're close enough to each other, then they'll eventually start inspiring towards each other. And to do that, to, as they inspiral towards each other, they will emit gravitational radiation or gravitational waves. Now, pulsars are amazing clocks. They're like some of the most accurate clocks in the universe. They're more stable than terrestrial atomic clocks. And as we measure that clock going around its companion, uh, and we can measure its, you know, its, its orbit parameters changing, we can tell that it's obviously sort of shrinking in size, therefore it's emitting gravitational waves. And I think there was a, there's a, I think it's 1974 Nobel Prize Prize won over this, over this, uh, these findings. So that's the indirect way of finding gravitational waves. The direct way of finding gravitational waves is a little bit different in that um, we're not looking for gravitational waves that come from your regular stellar type or stellar mass systems, like a, a regular star, massive star that blows up and, and you know becomes a black hole and orbits its companion and that they finally merge and create gravitational waves. Instead, we're looking for gravitational waves that come from much bigger objects and they're called supermassive black holes and they reside at the heart of most galaxies that we know of. And when these supermassive black holes um, orbit each other and sort of inspire themselves or collide and smash together as galaxies do over cosmic history, uh, that should generate lots and lots of gravitational waves. They're just lower frequency. They're not the same frequency as a stellar mass one. And so a pulsar is like a big interferometer, like the ones that we have at LIGO and, and Virgo. And so the, the, uh, the beam of radio light between us and the pulsar, uh, the Earth and the pulsar, for example, is like a giant arm of an interferometer. And so when we have a whole series of pulsars around the galaxy at different, at different locations, different angles of the galaxy, these are giant arms of interferometers around us. And so what happens is uh, we use those clocks at the end of those beams to work out if there's any variances and uh, correlation amongst signal across all those beams. And so if we see, you know, that pulsar doing something funny and it's doing something funny by itself, we're like, mm, okay, that pulsar's crazy. Pulsars are crazy. You know, don't worry about it too much. But if that pulsar does something and then that pulsar does something and that pulsar does something and then all the pulsars across the galaxy does something, then we start saying to ourselves, hang on, something big is happening here because it's, moving an entire galaxy. And so that tells us that a huge gravitational wave event is occurring and something that can only create that is something as big as supermassive black hole binaries that are, you know, that are merging with each other or combining or in spiral with each other as well. Just to give uh, you guys a sense of scale, the gravitational waves uh, created by um, stellar-sized black holes or neutron star collisions uh, that we have measured so far um, change uh, the lasers in these uh, interferometers uh, uh, in Italy, in the US, uh, soon in India and in Japan by a fraction, a tiny fraction of an atom. So this is why we need to have this laser going for um, few kilometers uh, and measuring something as uh, beyond the atomic level. With these gravitational waves uh, uh, from supermassive black holes, uh, being lower frequency, you need something galaxy size. So it's amazing. I think it's fantastic that we are building a detector 
that is the size of our galaxy. It's basically a giant machine, in a way. Yeah, well, we are we are being very very clever on using, as Rami said, the most accurate clock in the universe mm. in a way to see if uh, suddenly all the clocks are slightly off and trying to work out why they're slightly off. Are they used in that regard? Are they used to triangulate precisely where the event would have taken place? Or do you already sort of have an inkling of, okay, this is likely where it did take place, and then you observe the pulsars around it? That's a fantastic question. And, 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 and what I didn't explain earlier, and I should have explained earlier, is uh, we're also, there's a slight uh, difference between the gravitational waves that we see by, uh, by a LIGO and Virgo versus what we're going to see by a pulsar timing array, which is a, the, the detector I just described. Um, so effectively, what we're looking for is not a single event, so not you know, two supermassive black holes individually sort of coming together and merging, but rather we're looking for something called the gravitational wave backgrounds. And the frequency we're looking for it in is uh, very, very small. It's nanohertz frequency. And what that is, is actually the, the dull roar of cosmic history of all the supermassive black holes in history, which have actually combined and hit each other and merged. So basically galaxy evolution over cosmic time. So it's more of a background that we're searching for uh, and, and our resolution is that rather than an individual event. You can use PTAs to sort of uh, target individual events. So let's say we wanted to look at the Virgo cluster and see if there are some um, uh, GW gravitational waves coming from the Virgo cluster in nanohertz. We can use certain pulsars in that region to sort of to, to focus in that region. But generally, a pulsar timing array, which looks at a galaxy scale, is looking for a gravitational wave background, which is basically like a hum, almost like the cosmic radiation background, but in gravitational waves produced by supermassive black holes. Goodness me, that's fascinating. That is wow. absolutely amazing. I think I'm going to go and claim the last question. Uh, I know that there's been already some findings on uh, the uh, gravitational wave uh, background from... Uh, uh, all this uh, uh, supermassive black holes merging throughout uh, the ages of the universe. Uh, but uh, can we uh, can we go even further with uh, the pulsar timing array? Uh, and mostly because I'm thinking that the cosmic microwave background, uh, as a listener may know, is the first time in the universe the light was free to move, and so it's the limit. Uh, uh, at which point uh, we cannot look further back using electromagnetic radiation, so light in uh, all its shapes and form. But could we see further with gravitational waves? Yes, I mean, we, we hope so. I can't say yes for sure because I don't yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> There's no certainty in science. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, look, I mean, yes, we, we could probe probably a little bit further into cosmic history um, based on. Uh, the different frequencies of gravitational waves. So um, if you go even to lower frequency gravitational waves, which is going to be require a bigger detector, so you probably need a galaxy cluster size detector, you can start pro probing things like the inflation history of the universe and uh, cosmic string effects uh, around, you know, what they did around the universe in the very early universe period as well. Um, it's very theoretical at this stage because obviously we can't build a cluster size detector, but if we find a way to do it, we definitely can. Um, in terms of the actual... Uh, the frequencies that we look at, the nanohertz frequencies, there's some beautiful stuff that we can look at as well. And it's not just related to the gravitational wave background. Um, we can use our detector, for example, to study our solar system. 
And people are like, huh? What, what do you mean solar system? Well, you know, the, we measure our pulse signals. We say that we measure them from Earth, but really we measure them from the center of our solar system, the Barry Center, because the Earth's always moving in a, you know, it's, it's spinning on its axis and your telescope goes around the world. And the telescope's got the moon and the Earth, uh, you know, imbalance. And that's going around the sun all the time. So there's constant movement. So we sort of neutralize our, our signal to come from the center of the Barry Center of our solar system. Now, the beautiful part about this is that all the planets move this is the barrier center like jupiter moves the barrier center by 12.5 meters a second for example and we can see jupiter in our pulsar data and its mass down to five decimal places like we can tell you jupiter's mass down to five decimal places because the pulsar data is so sensitive and what's wonderful about that even further is that we can look for things like planet x because if it's there it should move the barrier center and we should be able to see it in our pulsar data and so there's some wonderful science you can do from outside the GWB stuff, including probing like from probing the inflationary era all the way up to like measuring the masses of moons of Saturn or something like that. I am, oh my God, I had no idea about that. That is absolutely fantastic. My mind is absolutely blown. Actually broken him. Oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> oh God, I love radiational waves. I love radiational waves. And pulsars are incredible. Wonderful. Thank you very much for taking the time. So cool. Yeah, to tell us all about the pulsars and the gravitational uh, wave uh, array. Thank you very much. Sorry, I'm still recovering <laughs> from the idea that the pulsar timing can tell us about uh, uh, about so much about the solar system. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, it's stuff. And, and thank you for having me. It's been it's been great to uh you know jump board. I can't wait to hear it online and uh and lovely to meet you folks over, over Zoom and, and in person as well. Yeah. Um if uh if people want to ask you some more questions, where can they find or just you? find you online? Yeah, yeah, Twitter's a great place to ask me questions, but um if they fire them through to you and you want to send them through, I'm happy to respond as well. If they've got emails. Um my uh uh my emails all over the web as well, so they can find me online. But effectively Twitter's probably the fastest way to find me, Cosmic Rami. Um, and I usually respond within a couple of hours if I'm not online at the time. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. No worries. Take care. No worries. Enjoy your morning. Enjoy your time. Thank you. <laughs> See ya. Wonderful. Thank you so much.